0: i draw your attention this morning back to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, we'll read verses 5 through 9. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. and there is no partiality with him. Let's pray. Our gracious Lord and heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, Lord, and we uh, beg help of you. We beg for your grace and your mercy as we look to your word. Lord, that you'd give us discernment and wisdom. Lord, that you would uh, feed us from your word this morning. Teach us, Lord. Uh, May the Holy Spirit be our guide and Uh, the giver of wisdom and understanding to us. Lord, that we would look to your word, Lord. It truly is that which we would hear this morning is, is the word that you have for us. Lord, there are so many obstacles in this life, so many difficulties, trials and struggles. Lord, it is an amazing thing that You would give victory even over those things that are difficulties in our life. But Lord, what an amazing miracle it is that You would give us victory in the realm of our souls. Lord, that You would free us from sin. That You would bring salvation to such needy people. Lord, and make them your servants. Lord, be with us here this morning. To the name of Christ we pray. Amen. I know we've probably discussed some of this before, but due to the text that we're looking at this morning, I want to bring up some things by maybe a way of illustration to start. Um, so think we'll bring these back up again um maybe in a slightly different way but um, i want to ask this morning maybe as we start do you understand how foolish it is that we would treat something according to the effect and not according to the cause this, i hope that that question makes sense uh let me let me rephrase that maybe um How ignorant and foolish is it for us to treat a symptom when there is a cure for the disease? When there is a cure for that which causes the symptom? Is this not often what takes place in the medical field today? No, Aaron works in the medical field. Uh, We often have a symptom, and what happens is we medicate for that symptom. We medicate for the symptom. And that that medication itself sometimes has an effect on us. Sometimes that medication has a side effect. That side effect causes other symptoms to appear, and then what do we do? (laughs) Aaron motioned it with her hands. We treat that symptom. And then something else pops up. And then what? Well, you all know exactly what. We give another type of medication to treat that symptom, and then on and on and on. All of a sudden, and I can tell you from what I do for a living going into some of these houses that you open up a cupboard, a cabinet, and there is just medicine bottle after medicine bottle, shelves deep all the way with medication. I don't know how a person could drink enough water to take the medication that they are prescribed. And I know there are times in the medical field that we don't have a cure. So we have to treat the symptoms. That may be the only case. And I'm not a doctor. I joke with my kids sometimes. I don't even play one on TV, right? But I think we all are observant enough and see what goes on around us that this is the case in life. Whether it's the medical field, whether it's the psychological field, Maybe in the educational field, no, it's certainly the case in the public safety field. I know that all illustrations or analogies are somewhat imperfect, so let me come at it from a little bit different angle let's say let's 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 say we have a spring that's out in the middle of some spot, and this spring feeds several different villages with water and this spring becomes polluted and the water then that flows from that spring is going to be what it's going to be polluted and there in the villages that this water feeds through this spring this polluted spring people are becoming sick they're becoming diseased and they're dying So what is the wise course of action here? Is it to find a medicine to treat the disease, to search for a medicine to treat the disease, the symptoms of this disease, or is the wiser course of action to go to the stream, to the spring, and either find a way to purify that stream, that spring, or to find another spring where you can get clean water. Well, we'll see a little bit of this in the text as we go on this morning. As we look at the way Paul addresses slavery and the relationship that exists between slave and master, or as our text that that we read earlier from the ESV translates it, bondservants. Some of you may be reading from a translation that translates the word, the Greek word here as servants. Servants. Pray we'll come full, back, full circle back to this this morning as we address uh, various things through, through the text here. But we must always begin uh, with the text. We must go to this text of sacred scripture uh, so that our thoughts this morning and that which we proclaim would be that which God would have us to see from His infinite uh, gift to mankind His Word, His holy and inerrant uh, Word that He's given to us and His His wisdom and His sovereign authority that we might uh, know what is our rule of faith and practice. This is where we want to always be. But as Paul starts this section of Scripture, we read in Ephesians 6, verse 5, "...Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling." with a sincere heart as you would Christ. I feel compelled to say just a couple things here as we begin this morning. First, um, I think we probably have, and and I probably should have brought this to our attention a little bit earlier. We've talked about before that the text itself is what has been preserved for us. It is what has been given to us by inspiration of the the Holy Spirit. But the scriptures that we see in our modern Bibles today with their divisions of chapters and verses are not the 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 breakdown of those, I should say they're not that's not inspired and i I kind of feel like we have a, a, a mistake in the breakdown here uh, in the way that these chapters and verses are. What Paul is dealing with, what he dealt, what we dealt with last week in verses 1 through uh, 4 of chapter 6 and what we're dealing with today in verses 5 through 9 belong with chapter 5. There's no doubt about that. Uh, and then verse 10 where Paul begins, finally, finally be strong. That is where I would much prefer to see a chapter break right here. We so often get caught up in reading these epistles by their chapter and by their verse and we forget that this is just really one long letter to this church at Ephesus. And so we break things down and we don't follow the continuity. We don't follow what Paul is trying to get us to see here as he builds through this epistle. And certainly chapter 6, the first nine verses belong with chapter 5, which we have kind of, uh, Paul has been dealing with this, this, that this is a continuation of in chapter 5 up to the text where we find ourselves this morning. And it all starts, all starts with verse 18 of chapter 5 where we read, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And then also in verse 21 then, a second point that kind of fits within the context and kind of as the foundation for the context of what we're dealing with, verse 21 in chapter 5, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Those two foundational principles, being filled with the Spirit and submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Paul addresses in these sections of of Scripture, chapter 5 all the way through verse 9 of chapter 6, he addresses everything from family, husbands and wives, children and parents, and now he's going to address work or master and slave. I think by application we can obviously... Make application that there's there's some things for us, even though we don't live in a culture of slavery, uh, that we can make application of this in work, but I do believe that these belong with chapter five, and the second point that I kind of got, got into here uh, already is this This that Paul is dealing with in chapter 5, the end of chapter 5, starting with verse 22 all the way through 6, 9, really and truthfully encompasses every single one of us by its implication. There is not a single one of us who has not been a child who has had parents. Most of us, once we reach a certain age, have been married we, we have as a frame of reference here husband and wife, and it's at that point that we normally have children. So in the implication of all this, we're getting that as a parent as well. And then certainly what we're dealing with this morning has relevance to each and every one of us as we work, as we go through life, whether it's as a worker or as a boss. So this, by implication, hits all of us. And it really truthfully is every area of our life that that Paul is touching with here that must be Spirit-filled. We're called to live a Spirit-filled life. And I don't mean by that that we're to speak in tongues. I don't mean that we're to be slain in the spirit i don't mean that we're to run around jumping up and down i don't mean that we're to live out our best life by speaking things by by uh by naming it and claiming it so that we can have our health wealth and prosperity it's not what i mean by a spirit-filled life i don't think that is taught in scripture What a spirit-filled life is, is living out our lives exactly the way Paul has been telling us here in Ephesians 5 through 6, chapter 6, verse 9. By being filled with the Holy Spirit, submitting one to another, these are the effects of what Paul has been dealing with all through Ephesians chapter 1 through Ephesians chapter 3. Those things which God has done for us. Now what? Now we live in the spirit filled with the spirit isn't that what Paul is really saying here these are every single one of these things that he is that we've been dealing with over the last several weeks is a picture of Christ and his people the relationship of the husband and wife is to be a picture of Christ and His church. Children and parents, we have a heavenly Father that we are to obey. We're to honor Him. And our heavenly Father at times disciplines us. He instructs us, and He always is instructing us through that which He's given us to be our rule of faith and practice, which is His Word. And even here... In this difficult passage that we're going to look at this morning, there is a picture of Christ in His church. We are the slaves of Christ. He is our master. Each and everything that we've been looking over the last few weeks and again this morning, is about what God has purposed and Christ has accomplished and what Paul has given us, like we said in chapters 1 through 3, what Christ has done to fix what are all uh, all these, these last three Sundays, four Sundays? We've been dealing with relationship issues, right? What is it that Christ has come to do? In reality... Remember back in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, after Adam and Eve had taken of the fruit and they had sent. Genesis 3, chapter 8, and they then heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves. From the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. What was wrong here? The relationship was broken. They hid themselves from the Lord God in the garden. They sinned, and that relationship was severed. They died to God, separated from Him because of the fall. And they sought to hide themselves due to this break in the relationship. And with that break, each and every relationship of mankind has since that day been broken. Every single relationship. And what we've been dealing with the last four weeks, including this week, is God, by His infinite wisdom and purpose, His providence, His His predestinating grace has made a way whereby not only our relationship with God can be reconciled, but as we've already seen as we go through Ephesians, our relationship with others can also be reconciled. Through Christ we have been brought near to God. Isn't that what we looked at several weeks ago? and made us, that is, Jew and Gentile, one. A relationship that was deeply severed. Jews and Gentiles hated each other. Brought and made into one. So with these things in mind, let's continue on here. Slaves bond servants, obey your earthly masters with a sincere heart as you would Christ. First off we we must address that these that Paul is exhorting here truly are slaves. They truly are. Uh, he is writing to the church in Ephesus, which was made up in large part by those who were slaves. Ephesus was the capital of this Roman province in Asia, And slavery was rampant there in Ephesus, in all of the Roman Empire. Yes, there were indentured servants. Yes, there were hired servants. Yes, there were all different levels of of service that were, were employed here. But what we're dealing with here this morning is something much more. Paul will in verse 8, if you look down, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. This draws attention to the fact, and it's my understanding that there's a contrast that Paul is putting forward here between bondservant and free. Literally, this is slave and one who had been freed from slavery. So when Paul uses the word, as we have translated in the ESV bond servant, the better translation for this is just slave. Just slave. We'll not take time to look at slavery as it relates to the Old Testament slavery, uh, which was prevalent in the Jewish culture. Uh, there were laws that governed that, given by God to Moses. Moses. I would love to do that sometime in a Bible study or, or uh, sometime when we can get together on a Sunday afternoon or something like that. But uh, for the sake of time, we won't deal with this this morning. What I will say is it's differed greatly from that which Paul is talking about, this slavery, these that are slaves here in Ephesus. Slavery in the, the Greek and Roman era was widespread, it's the, the type of slavery that we more readily think about and, and make reference to because of what has happened in our country and the slavery that existed in our country. Um, but it's possible that it was on a much, much grander scale than even that which we uh, experienced in our country, and I'll explain that in just a second. But this is the type of slavery that was even forbidden by Jewish law. We read in Exodus twenty one sixteen Whoever steals a man and sells him and any one found in possession of him shall be put to death in the Greek city of Delos Delos there were as many as ten thousand slaves sold in a single day. Now to put a scale on this, if we take that number by about half, let's say that 10,000 was the most. Let's half that and say 5,000. And instead of 365 days a year, let's say 250 days a year. There were 5,000 slaves that were sold. That's over a million slaves in a year. By contrast, when I look up what our country was involved in back in the 1700s and 1800s, the transatlantic slave trade, there were about 80 to 85,000 during the 1820s to 1830s. 80,000 a year. So you can see the scale of the slavery that was in and around this Roman rule that was being lived in in the time that Paul wrote this epistle to the Ephesians this type of slavery is heinous sinful deserving of death according to what we read from Exodus brought about what by what can only be described as utter depravity or radical corruption brought about in the heart of mankind by the fall, by original sin. And an absolute destruction that flowed from that of the relationship of man to man. But even in light of that, and in light of the fact that a large part of the congregation Paul is addressing here in Ephesus, are on the slave side of the master-slave relationship, he tells these slaves to obey their earthly masters with fear and trembling, with honor and respect. He exhorts them to obey in the same manner they would obey Christ. This is at first glance something that is extremely shocking, especially to us who look at the heinousness of slavery and are disgusted by it, how could Paul tell them to obey their earthly masters? He says to obey them, not just obey them, but obey them with honor and reverence, with a sincere heart, as they would honor and revere Christ Jesus with a sincere heart. And this is not the only place we read this. This is not the only passage of Scripture that makes reference to this. Colossians 3.22, bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Paul writing to Titus in Titus two verse nine says, Bondservants servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative. In 1 Timothy 6.1, Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. And even Peter, in 1 Peter 2.18 says, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Paul goes on in verse 6 to explain what it is to do this with a sincere heart. Ephesians 6:6, 6, 6, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. This is what Paul means when he says to obey your masters with a sincere heart. It is to be done not as people pleasers, not by false pretense, not in deceit, not in hypocrisy, but do it with fear and trembling. With a sincere heart as you would as a slave of Christ. Or because you are a slave of Christ doing the will of God from your heart. Paul is exhorting these Christian slaves to obey their masters as part of their obedience to Christ. Christ who sees, Christ who knows, not just the outward, but the inward. Isn't this what we made reference to last week when we made reference to the seven letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor? There in Revelation 2 and 3, each one of those begins with Christ Jesus saying, I know. I know things about you that you don't even know. I know your poverty, but you're rich. I know your tribulation. This is not something that is unknown to me. This is not something that is hidden from me. Christ knows. And Paul is telling these slaves to obey their earthly masters as they would obey Christ who sees into the very heart and the very intent of these slaves' obedience. It's as if Paul is saying, if you would please Christ, if you would please your master Christ, if you would honor Christ, if you would be faithful to Christ as your master, then do this. And he further explains in verse 7, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Paul, Paul speaks to these slaves here in Ephesus and he says, obey, render service to the Lord and not to man. This is how... One in this situation may do what is right, even in the face of a cruel and uncaring taskmaster. This is how it's done. Do it as to the Lord, not to man. That's what we're called to do. That's what these slaves here are called to do. This is kind of like having someone you don't like asking you to do a task that you don't want to do. You ever been in that situation? It's a very difficult thing to do, is it not? To have someone you just really don't care to be around ask you to do something you don't want to do. A task that is, is just the, the worst thing you can think about. And it kind of compounds the disdain for doing that, that the person who asked you to do it is a person you don't care for. But isn't it different when someone that you love comes to you and asks you to do that task? Isn't it different when someone you honor and revere comes to you and says, Would you do this? Then though the task is dreaded, and it may be a weighty task, it's done with joy, to please the one who you love who asked you to do it. Do you see the difference? Well, let me ask you by way of application here. If this applies to slaves, does it not also apply to those who are hired? Those who are just workers who work for someone else? Would this not be true in that case just as much as Paul here exhorts to the slaves? Work hard. Do that which you've been asked by those who have been placed in authority over you to do and do it as to the Lord. Wives, submit to your husbands. Children, obey your parents. Workers, your boss. Slaves, your masters. It's all to be done with the heart As to the Lord, by the transforming power of His grace, given to each one of those. These are not just any slaves here. Which slaves is He writing to? To the saints who are in Ephesus. There's a difference to the saints who are in Ephesus, among whom are some of these slaves. Do you see what this accomplishes? From the verse we referenced just a moment ago in 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 6.1, Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that, here Paul gets to the point, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Here is the point Paul was making there in his letter to Timothy. This obedience is to be done so that the name of God may be magnified in all who observe the life of the one who has been united to Christ Jesus. This is the one who bears his name. The life of one who has been united to Christ. The one who follows after him. In submission to him as the head of the body. In submission to him as the groom of the bride. In submission to him as their heavenly master. Well, do we see anywhere in Scripture? Anywhere? where this is a principle that is played out in some way that we can make reference to this. I'm glad you asked, or at least thought of that. We read earlier in our congregational scripture reading, didn't we? From Philemon. We'll look at this again in a moment from another perspective, but in what we are looking at right now, from the perspective of slave to master, look at what Paul tells Philemon about Onesimus. Philemon 1:11 Formerly he was useless to you. But now he is indeed useful to you and to me. Do you see this principle at work here in Onesimus? A slave who was not useful to his master. Disobedient, evidently a thief. I think we can imply that from the letter that Paul wrote to Philemon. Had no respect for his master, according to the flesh, and he escaped, fleeing to Rome. Fled. Ran right into the apostle Paul, who was imprisoned there. Is there not providence at work here? This slave flees from his master and runs smack dab into uh, the Apostle Paul who's on house arrest in Rome, writing some letters. Ephesians, Colossians, and then Philemon. He runs into Paul, and it was from Paul at Onesimus. This runaway slave learned of sin and of the gospel of Jesus Christ and he became a member of the body of Christ, a joint heir of eternal inheritance through Christ. So Paul sends Onesimus back with this letter to Philemon and most likely he and another also carried Colossians and Ephesians with them. So this letter that we're written, that we are reading from this morning and that we've been studying, may have been carried by Onesimus as well. So Paul sends him back to Philemon, and Paul says, Philemon, this is Onesimus. I'm sending back to you this one, but this is not the same Onesimus that escaped from you. Not the one that you knew. A change has been wrought in Him. He's been brought from death to life. He's become a new creature by the Spirit of God. He's been joined to Christ. And He is a servant of His heavenly Master. Therefore, He will no longer be useless to you. But useful to you and to me. Because he seeks to what? Because he seeks to obey Christ. Here then is the principle that we see that Paul has laid out for this submission in the lives of slaves to their masters. I like what Ian Hamilton says regarding this. He says, Paul is reminding these slaves of their new identity in Christ. He says, remember who you are Remember to whom you owe your first allegiance. Live not to please mere men, but to please the Lord who freed you and made you his bond servant. Then Hamilton goes on to make application beyond that of just slave and master. You know, we don't live in a culture that is, at least here in the United States, is predominantly a master-slave culture. That all is by law done away with, thankfully. But we don't live in that anymore. But Ian Hamilton says here, he says, Christians are always to be noted for their being respectful and diligent workers. And not only when they are being watched. Every Christian is to live quorum Deo, before the face of God. Our first concern in work as in all of life, is not to please the boss, but to please and honor the master. With a capital M. <clears throat> Paul then addresses further reason for these slaves doing these things and living in the manner he exhorts them to live. In Ephesians 6, 8, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. It is the Lord, Paul says, who will repay your service. Remember that there is an inheritance to be received. There is an inheritance that is guaranteed by the Holy Spirit who has been sent and that inheritance is sealed by the Spirit of God for each and every member of the redeemed family of God. Every spiritual blessing in heavenly places are ours to enjoy, whether you're a bondservant, a slave, or a free. There isn't one for the free man and one for the slave. Both, slave and free, both are adopted as sons by God the Father through Jesus Christ. This is a true reward, is it not? That all which belongs to Christ and are by right His are ours by our union to Him. These things are bestowed upon all of Christ's bride, whether slave or free. All of His body, all who are united to Him, in Colossians three twenty-two through 25, we referenced this earlier. Now let's look at what follows it. Bond servants, Paul says in his letter to the church at Colossae. bondservants, servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. There is no partiality with God. We'll touch on this more in just a moment. Paul then in verse 9 turns to the masters as we come to the close of this particular part of this epistle masters verse 9 masters do the same to them and stop your threatening knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him do the same to them what does paul mean by this i would suggest to you that he is referencing the exhortation to do your particular duties As to the Lord. All that we do, whether slave or free, master or workman, is to be done as to the Lord. In light of that, Paul says, stop your threatening. Don't you know that your masters also have a master? You masters have your own master." You're not the sovereign. Even those who had possession of others. They're not their own masters. But you also have one to whom you must give account. Remember what Paul said there in Colossians. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. So he's reminding these masters, that they also have a master in heaven. And here's what Paul says He who is their master, the slave's master, is the same one that's yours. You both are under the same master who is in heaven. There's no partiality with him. You're both his servants. You are both his children. There is no partiality. I want to read once again this parallel passage in Colossians. Listen very closely as it relates to this passage. Bond servants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters knowing that you also have a master in heaven. We will see this as we look again at Paul's exhortation to Philemon. Philemon 1, verse 8. Accordingly, Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment formerly. He was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you. And to me, I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted with you for a while that you might have him back forever. And then see what Paul says. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. Especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge it, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. You see, Paul would would speak to his recorder and he would speak what he would have this person write for him and he would write it out but Paul says here give me the pen I write this with my own hand I will repay it whatever he stole from you whatever he took from you I will repay it to say nothing of you owing me even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. He's saying to Philemon, show me your love for Christ in receiving Onesimus back as a brother. Show me the love you have for me in treating Onesimus, your slave, as a brother in the Lord. Here is the heart of what Christ has done. Here it is. That the servant may submit to the master in fear and trembling, and that the master might treat the servant as a brother, as a joint heir of Christ, as a fellow adoptee of the Father. This, my friends, is the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The transforming work of God's grace in the heart of a sinful man to make them a son of God the Father, to make them a joint heir with Jesus Christ, to make them a brother with those who they were at enmity with. As we start to draw this to a close, I want to make sure that we understand something. There are groups that will say that Paul was wrong here and he should have called for the abolition of slavery. And that's a a thought that runs through a lot of people's minds when they read this. Why didn't he just say slavery's wrong? Just set them all free. But I want to point out something to you. The New Testament never seeks as its goal to transform society from the outside. Never. It doesn't tear down the social structures of a society from outward force, coercion, manipulation. That's not the way the gospel of Jesus Christ works. The New Testament instead in all of Scripture shows us the transformational power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You want something that's truly revolutionary, that's it. It's not forced from without, but it springs up from the heart that is made new. From the new creature, the new creation Of the Spirit of God through the work of Christ and the providential plan of God the Father. This is how things change. The Scripture never treats the symptom, never treats the symptom. The Gospel is applied to the condition. The gospel of Jesus Christ has sought out the cure for the crisis. And here it is. Man has sinned. Man is alienated from God because of that sin. Man cannot come before Him. It's not even about the will. Man cannot come before God the Father... God Almighty, because in his sin, he won't come because he hates God and he cannot come because God won't have him in his presence because his heart is full of sin. God won't look at sin. He's too righteous. He's too holy. He hates sin and he hates the sinner. So then what hope does man have? Where's our hope? Man has hope in the gospel. Of Jesus Christ. The gospel of the God-man. What does the whole first three chapters of Ephesians tell us? Do you see why Paul spent so much time detailing out what it is that God has done? Chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. Redemption through Christ's blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. It's rich in mercy made a way for us. Now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace. Broken down, that middle wall of separation. We could go on and on and look at Scripture after Scripture about what God has purposed, what Christ has accomplished for us, and what is applied by the Holy Spirit. Christ made satisfaction for us. Propitiation by His blood. I'm going to say something and I don't want you to misunderstand me. Slavery, as the slavery that was existing here when Paul was writing this epistle to the Ephesians, The slavery that we that has existed in our country in the past is heinous, it's sinful, it's despicable. Why didn't Paul seek to abolish slavery? Slavery in the issue. Slavery is a byproduct of the issue. Slavery is a symptom of the issue. The fallen heart of man is the issue. But slavery is also a picture of our relationship to Christ. Some might say, are you telling me i got to submit to Christ as my master? Am I really to be the slave of Christ? That's exactly what I'm saying what scripture tells us a white man might say you mean I have to submit like really submit I have to become a slave I won't submit to any man you fool you're not submitting to a mere man you're submitting to the God man perfect master one who loves, who's caring, who's gentle and honest and true and righteous and holy and upright, who says to his slaves, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. This master that we're to submit to is a master who went to a cruel cross to redeem you. What did he do there with his blood? He bought you. At the expense of his own life, he bought you, bled and died to make you his own purchased possession. And He's given to you everything that is His. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you so. I go to prepare a place for you. Do you know that in this day, often the slave lived in the house of his master? So it any wonder... That Paul would say in this passage, servants, bondservants, slaves, obey your earthly masters as you would Christ. Christ is more than an earthly master. He's the perfectly righteous, holy, upright, loving, caring, gracious, merciful, heavenly master. You understand that there was a provision in the law For a Jewish slave to willingly submit himself to his master for life. Jewish slavery, one of the ways that it was different was there was a time period on this. Seven years. But if a man, if a slave loved his master... He could willingly submit himself to his master for life. Exodus 21, 5-6 says, But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. Well, here revealed to us in Scripture is a master who we can truly say, I love my master. I want no freedom but to be bound to him for life. Forever. Give me Christ as my portion. Give me Christ always. Give me Christ as my head. Give me Christ as my bridegroom. Give me Christ as my master. Forever. Let's pray. (coughs) Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word thank you for what it reveals to us of Christ we thank you that he has redeemed us he has purchased us he has bought us thank you for redemption thank you that we have a gracious and kind and loving and merciful Master who would lay down His life for us that we might be reconciled to You we might be made children of our Heavenly Father Lord give us grace that we may submit ourselves fully to Him Lord, that we may follow him, follow his leading, follow his example. And Lord, that by doing that we might be a light to those around us. That our relationship to Christ might somehow draw others to you. Be with us throughout this week, Lord.